Welcome to A Penny for Your Thoughts, a podcast brought to you by Sean Bloomgren and Andrew Penny from Central Iowa. On our show, we discuss all things agronomy, high-yield management, and give you real-time updates on what we're seeing and hearing in the field. We will also gain insight from industry professionals as we bring you relevant and timely information on current agronomic practices. Thank you for joining us. Welcome back to part two with uh, Dr. Dorvar uh, Diaz from K-State, where we're talking about uh, uh, fertilizers and understanding and interpreting soil tests. Uh, so with this second part, we're going we're gonna to implement all of that science we learned from the first part and, uh, you know, discuss how we can, uh, you know, put to use some of that information when we're uh, putting fertilizers on. So let's, uh, uh, Dorvar, let's, let's start from the very beginning. And what, when, it, when is the ideal time to go out and soil sample? That's an excellent question, and um, of course we do we do have uh, and here again we need to focus on what's practical and, and what the farmer can actually uh, how the, farm, the farmer can actually use this a little bit better. And the reality is that the best time for soil sampling can be a little bit different depending on some nutrients, right? But again, I worry more about the farmer just collecting soil samples sometimes, and so that means sometimes what is that best timing uh, for them to make decisions. Just to give you an example, um, I, I will I will say, for example, uh, things like potassium, the best timing will probably be spring, right? Mm-hmm. Um, it's probably a little bit more accurate depending on, on soil conditions. Um, but then again, from the practical standpoint, um, fall sampling will probably be best because the farmer can make decisions in terms of what application rates they're gonna do in the, in the spring and so on. Yep. And so you always, that, that time of, of fall, um, in our case, we can actually do some some sampling in the winter months. Uh, if we have a nice day, in, like you know February or so, we can do some of that. Um, and so, depending on where you are, as long as you have that window in late fall, winter, or early spring, typically tends to be the best the best time. Uh, and again, we can still make decisions based on that information. When we're soil sampling, how do dry soils impact the results? That's that's been a common question this year. Obviously, with the, <laughs> with the drought we have, <laughs> we have recently, and and, 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 and there are a few things. The, probably makes it hard to get the probe in there too. Say, I, yeah, I know. Yeah. Oh yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah. Some people say, "Can you come and do soil sampling for me?" That's uh, maybe. Dang, you need an auger to soil, get in some right. of those soils. <laughs> yeah, but but it is a good point, you know. Um, and, and we may talk a little bit more about this. Just just collecting accurate sample in the field, um, it is a challenge, right? Because you have to be consistent in sampling depth, right? And and yes, the, the dry soils and hard soils can be a, an issue sometimes. Um, but but you know, to the how is the dry conditions affect some nutrients? Uh, things like like pH. Um, uh, that, that's that's an excellent point, and, and we actually seen some of that. And what happened is when you have uh, dry conditions for for you know multiple months or or even year in some of our cases, uh, uh, you tend to have more salts accumulating close to the soil, right? You have evaporation and, and some of that salts moving close to the surface. Uh, obviously, there's going to be hydrogen with some of that, right? Yep. And so that collecting that sample, uh, measure pH, you basically find more hydrogen. So the pH will tend to be a little bit lower uh, than what you typically see. However, this is just, uh, again, a temporary effect of that dry conditions. Uh, Once we get rain and we have some of that leaching back, 
uh, that tends to be uh, go back to to the normal uh, conditions. So uh, that's something that I will tend to watch a little bit closer with these uh, dry conditions. Is okay pH, and suddenly I see uh, a drop in my pH numbers. I wouldn't be too quick in, in terms of making decisions, especially given the dry conditions. Um, I think we, we need to, to pay attention to that. Um, one other nutrient that may be affected, and this is a little bit more indirect, is, uh, is potassium. Uh, mm -hmm. Potassium typically, um, there are a couple of factors there, actually. Uh, one of them is that, you know, we, we have a fair amount of potassium that leach back from the residue into the soil, right? And so that's basically driven by by moisture, right? And so, um, you know, we harvest corn in the in the fall, and if we get some a little bit of moisture, some of that potassium from the residue goes back to the soil, and and we measure that in the soil test. Now, if we are not seeing any of that moisture, uh, obviously the potassium is not getting back to the soil. We're not seeing that. We're not measuring with the soil test. So that's one factor. The other thing too is that you know we have some clay types, and and depending on on conditions where we are, you know. Uh, long-term uh, dry conditions may actually affect the release of potassium from some clay layers. Mm -hmm. And so that's another one that may be affected a little bit depending on, on where we are. But the, the main one is really uh, uh, is really pH. And, yeah. and again, we are not talking here about the mobile nutrients, right? We're doing sulfur analysis or nitrate. All of those will be affected, obviously, by water movement as well. Yeah. So, so you got me thinking, too. Uh, um, you answered the, the the drought conditions very well. You know what, what could impact under dry conditions. You got me thinking. You know, one of my first jobs in in uh, in the crop production world back, God, it was 15, 16 years yeah. ago, was soil sampling. And and I remember there there were times, obviously in the fall when we do most of our soil sampling. The the you know there are times when the soils can be pretty wet. Is is there any any impact on saturated or wet soils? You know, as as far as pH or nutrients uh, within within that sample. Yes, I, I see less potential for issues there, uh, except for, again, we are looking at mobile nutrients. Uh, those obviously will be affected. Uh, but other, other things, uh, immobile nutrients, I, I think there's, there's like less effect of, of that that we can, we can measure. So I don't worry too much about that situation. Okay. So as a soil expert, what is your first action item when taking soil tests and then um, when, you, when you're taking those results and creating... Uh, real-world prescriptions? Yes, um, this, this is a good good point. Um, uh, one of the things that I always try to emphasize um, in agronomies and farmers is that, you know, they are the, 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 the ones who are more familiar with the specific soil, the specific production system. And when we're getting a recommendation coming from the lab, uh, typically those recommendations will tend to be average, uh, tends to be a little bit more general. So one thing that I like to do as much as possible is, okay, look at these soil test reports, and then let's look at the specific field, you know, the site-specific conditions that we have. Do we need to make some, some tweaks here? Do we need to make some changes? And, and I think that's, that's where the, the role of the agronomist really comes in, right? Um, if we're just going to follow whatever's coming from the software, from, from, from the lab, well, that's easy. But when you have an agronomist standing there in the field, he knows that he has certain issues, you know, middle of the season and, and so on. Maybe need to be thinking about splitting that uh, nitrogen or maybe you need to be thinking about sulfur. Um, that kind of things is go beyond what we basically see here, uh, taking just from the, from the 
from the prescription. And, and that's where I, I think is really the real world um, connection that we need. And that's where, again, the role of the farmer and the agronomist comes into play. Um, think, thinking about some of your recommendations and, and you know, just, just the focus on pH from, you know, the, the science portion, um, what, what's your ideal, you know, thinking across the corn belt, you know, it's obviously a, a lot of corn, soybeans, you, you got wheat and some mm-hmm. other, some uh, other crops there in Kansas and, and across the corn belt. Where, where is, is there a target pH that you like to go after and, and does that change with crop? Hmm. Yes, uh, that's a very good, very good point. A very good question. And, uh, you know, if we're thinking about what's the ideal for nutrient availability and plant growth in general, um, obviously we know that we need to be slightly acidic, right? Uh, so below seven, um, if I, if I was me, if I want to have an ideal pH, I think for, you know, for our typical corn soybean rotation, I like to be in that uh, six, five uh, to six, eight, something like mm-hmm. that, right? In that, in that range, uh, that would be ideal. Um, and then obviously you're getting things like alfalfa, which obviously needs to be a little bit on the higher end. That's, that's a, a little bit different. Obviously. Uh, yeah, yeah. <laughs> then, yeah, but then, but then we also get into situations of, of the practicality and, um, the economics. Oh, and, yeah. and, and again, and, and this, this is something that I, I know many producers that will say, okay, well, um, I want to be, a, I want to be a little bit closer to seven, um, so I make sure I have a longer time before I, the next time I need to apply lime, right? So you're really playing with that range a little bit. Yeah. And, and so, so that's, that's something that we also, we have to keep in mind. And, and again, like I mentioned earlier uh, in, the, in the previous section that we have to be careful not to go too high. And, and that's, that could be an issue. And, and, and that's, that's, I think, where we always want to be slightly acidic. And around that 6.5 would be, in my opinion, would be, would be ideal. How do, how does nitrogen and other fertilizers impact soil pH? Yes, um, that's really the main source of acidity in our production system is going to be nitrogen, right? Uh, that process of uh, nitrification, basically conversion from ammonia, which has hydrogen, to nitrate. Basically, you know, that hydrogen from the ammonium uh, is basically releasing the soil, right? So we're putting, you know, 180 to 100 pounds of nitrogen. Uh, it's going to be generating, leaving some hydrogen there. After 10 years of, of putting nitrogen, suddenly you see a significant drop in, in, in pH. And so that's going to be one of the main source. Obviously, acidity is also a natural process. Just decomposition of organic matter, you know, rainfall, that combination will be, you know, generating some acidity over time. So it is a natural process as well. We have to recognize that, but we are speeding up that a little bit with hydrogen with nitrogen, um, phosphorus, other sources that has nitrogen as well, it's going to contribute to acidity. Um, but that brings a, a question then, uh, how is the different placement of nitrogen and so on? How is that going to affect the, the pH and where is that low pH is going to happen? Oh, yeah, yeah. And, and, and you know, here we do have uh, quite a bit of strip teal, for example, and hydros going with the strip teal. Um, we're putting that nitrogen, I don't know, six, eight inches, depending on, uh, depending on, on the situation. And so we're really concentrating a lot of that uh, nitrogen and, and acidity a little bit lower in the profile. Um, we also do have quite a bit of urea going on the surface, so UAN going on the surface. And so we have obviously more of that acidity stay on the surface. Um, and so that's that's one situation that we're seeing that becomes a little bit more uh, relevant today with minimum tillage and not your systems, right? In the past, that's not really been an issue because 
you know, we mix the soil anyway. It doesn't matter where the nitrogen is going. Yeah. Um, but today uh, we do see a lot of, of that in some of our long-term no-till systems, you know, 25, 30 years with no-till uh, fertilizer apply on the surface. And suddenly we are seeing very, very low pH near the surface, mm -hmm. right? But now below that, you're getting, you know, four, six, eight inches below, and the pH is not too bad. And, mm -hmm. and so the problem really tends to be in that one or two inch in the surface. Um, so it is important, obviously, for, for from the fertility standpoint. I have my colleagues on applying herbicides that also say, hey, that low pH in the surface and residual herbicides may be a something else to worry about as well. Oh, yeah. So it has it has some some implications for sure. Well, you brought up a good point, and, and this is a question I, I get quite a bit, you know, depending on, on where you are in the state. We do have some strip tillage here. You know, you go east and west, especially west. There's a lot of no-till. And so, you know, often we talk about nutrient stratification, which is a common issue. Um, but but I do get the question quite a bit with with growers that are concerned about their pH. You know, obviously with with the nitrogen sources being put on, we we have a little bit higher pH, higher you know closer to the soil surface. But but they're concerned. You know, you think about the the rooting and, and where the plants are going to be taking up some nutrients. You know, you can get to that four to six to eight inches, and you'll have quite a bit different pH from four four inches down to eight inches. What, what what would you advise growers that are nervous about their pH a little bit lower in the soil, prof soil profile? Is there anything they can do? Or is it basically just spread your lime, hope, hope for moisture, and, and, you know, hopefully you can impact that? Yes, and, the, and, and there have been some work looking at, at this as well and what's really the effect of stratification. And uh, in the case of pH in particular, in nodule systems, what we see is that uh, the surface application typically react in the upper three inch or so, right? That's really what you're interacting with in, in that lime application. Uh, and that seems to be sufficient really to provide the benefit to the crop. And again, if you think about it, uh, very active roots are gonna be really near that surface, right? Where you have a lot of nutrients. Uh, and again, that tends to be one of the uh, perhaps more sensitive in terms of maintaining that pH. And um, one of the things uh, to keep in mind here also is that you know, if we are not the old producer and we are putting lime, you're only basically liming the upper two to three inches. Yeah. So basically we need less lime. And this is very important because sometimes we are basically talking about cutting in half the rate of lime application in that, that situation. Um, but then on the other side, what happens if you, you start to see, you know, low pH developing lower in the profile? Yeah. Um, again, I haven't seen that being really a, uh, a problem at this point um and 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 this this issue of stratification like i say is, is we we look at it uh, uh for, for 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 ph we look at it for phosphorus uh and again seems like the roots are distributing and getting to it we don't have any significant effects really of, of that so so again i will i will i will just Go with the surface application for no-till, and I think that's really the, the, the focus for, for pH in no-till systems. Yeah. Um, let's talk a little bit about uh, macros and micronutrients. Are there uh, nutrients where we should be focused on the ratios? Yes, and, and, and we talked a little bit about this in the, the previous section. You know, do, do we need to be looking at ratios of some nutrients and uh, and in general, I think, again, the, the, all the studies that we've done and, and more recent uh, studies show that there's really no need to worry about ratios uh, in the soil. Right? Yeah. 
the, the question here is really what is the limiting factor, right? And so, and, and so again, that's that's where we, we need to, to to look at very very closely here. Um, um, when you look at that salt test report, what 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 is potentially the one that's limiting our yields? Yeah. Right? Well, I, I think there that's, is, that's one of the most important questions. You know, I don't know I don't know if it's the last five to six years, but for some reason, it seems like growers and uh, I would say consultants are just so focused on this ratio. And, and yeah. I'm, not, I'm not up to date or educated enough to understand what's important or what's not in, in terms of this, you know, the ratio. So, so I'm glad that you clarified this. And I, I, I mean, as a physiologist and pathologist, I think about limiting factors. That, that's what I think about, you know, what's limiting. So I, I'm really glad that you clarified that. And, and, and I, I do remember you talking about that in the science, you know, just looking at research and, and how research is showing that ratios are less important and, and maybe just focus on what's the limiting factor in your soil profile. So, so I, I really like that, you know, that clarification. And yes, yes, and and again, it's from the fertility standpoint, that's that's really the case, you know. That and 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 we can. There are some discussion, and just to be fair, there are some discussions about what is the effect of of some ratios of cations, for example, for soil aggregates and physical properties. Um, and I think there are some uh, potential indication there, but you know, the the potential effects are so small. Uh, that ultimately will have no effect on crop yields, and and again the the, the research shows that really not effect on, on crop yields, and yeah. and you know trying to fix some of these ratios, they can be very expensive. Right? Yeah. Oh yeah. And so why do it if there's no benefit from crop production? So can I ask a question from a from a ratio standpoint, or or as we talk about this, when you when you make the reference to the limiting factor, are you referencing that based on plant physiology response, is that something you're observing as, a, as an agronomist in season, or is that uh, a learning you're taking out of a soil sample test? Or maybe maybe that's maybe that's both. But how are you evaluating the limiting factor, right? Right now in Kansas, the limiting factor is rain, <laughs> right? Uh, <laughs> but I mean, so as it, relies, as it relates to soil science, how are you, when you say limiting factor, give me guidance on that. Yes, yes, and this is um, this is the way. Again, I um, a little bit on the on the discussion we have earlier on on soil test methods and so on. Uh, to me, all of these analyses, all of these soil test uh, values that we're getting, they need to be related to crop response potential to crop response. Yeah, um, and so essentially, when I say limited factor is, you know, for example, if we see easy one, obviously it's phosphorus, right? If we see a low phosphorus content in the, in, in the soil. Um, what would be the implication of that in terms of crop response? Are we going to see a penalty in yields because we are seeing a 10 part per million versus a 30 part per million? Is yeah, there going to be yeah. a penalty? And, and that's really where, where to me, I, I want to focus. Uh, why would I put phosphorus or, or in the case of ratios, why would I put calcium or potassium if that's not going to make any difference to my crop growth yeah. in yields? Yeah. No, that's and a, so that's everything, a good point. everything in fertility, in my opinion, really needs to be to fertilizer to crop response for to, to for this to have to have any any value. Yeah. Well, I, I have one final question regarding the ratio, and, and I think it's just because it's probably the most common ratio I, I hear people discuss. You know, the whole calcium to mag is you know yeah. we, we, you obviously touched on that the ratio is being less important, but I, I feel like I have to ask this one just because it's more commonly discussed. 
is is the the ratio of calcium to mag does that fall into maybe less important just focus on are you are you low and and will you see a crop crop response or the the percent chance that you'll see a crop response or does that calcium mag ratio actually matter well and and, and here's where maybe there's a few other implications um and i think i touched on this a little bit is that maybe not just the fertility but also where potentially you know aggregation and 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 perhaps a little bit of the physical property of that soil, right? And so, so that's where is some of that discussion as well. Um, and I'm, that's getting outside of my area. Uh, um, but I think ultimately, again, do we really see a yield increase uh, from some of these soil aggregations that may, perhaps is minimal? Yeah. And, and again, that's, that's the question. But, but that's getting a little bit more on, on, on some of the, the physical properties, I think, that is outside of the fertility area in terms of nutrient supply. Yeah. Well, let, let's talk about one of my favorite uh, soil <laughs> uh, discussions, organic matter. I, I, I enjoy talking about organic matter, you know, talking about the mineralization process and all the, all the, the, the impacts that organic matter can have on, on our soil and, and nutrient availability. Um, what, what is, um, I, I guess my first question is, can we build organic matter? Yes, yes, we can build organic matter. And, and, and you know, we touched a little bit uh, earlier about things like soil health. And, um, you know, when you think about soil health, the first one that comes to mind is organic matter, right? Um, because it has many roles in the soil, uh, you know, water holding, uh, nutrient source, uh, uh, promote the, you know, the chemistry, the biology, uh, physical properties, so it's it's a big deal, you know. I and and I also enjoy talking about organic matter because yeah. because it, it has such a big impact in terms of in terms of multiple functions. Uh, yeah. The functions of typically looking for in the soil uh, can be driven by organic matter significant. Yeah, um, and I guess I failed. We build I failed it? too. I I, I should have started. What is organic matter? Yeah, there you go. <laughs> <laughs> yes, and 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 again, it's it's really. That's a that's a good point, right? What it is, and and that will basically lead us to how can we build it, and can we build it? And and organic matter is really residual, um, you know, plant residues, uh, uh, animal residues, anything that has uh, uh, that is defined as a organic compound, right? And then within the soil, organic matter, you you'll have what's you know, active organic matter, uh, what's more stable organic matter fraction, and you're gonna have some plant residue as well. All of this is part of the organic matter. So how can we build it? Well, already talking a lot about residue, right? And so we can, you know, grow better crops, um, just, you know, having good fertility and good biomass in our crops will contribute to increasing organic matter over time. Uh, using cover crops, obviously we're putting more carbon, more organic, organic material into that soil. Yeah. Um, I was involved a little bit in grad school with manure application. Those are ways to, you know, uh, increase organic matter pretty quickly. Uh, we basically uh, directly put in organic material uh, when we're putting things like manure in oh, the yeah. soil. Yeah. Right? And so this, these, are, these are ways that, you know, we can quickly increase. And, and, and this is, you know, when you see problems of Soil erosion or or or, or some uh, issues in some parts of the soil, you know, that's that's where things like you know applying manure and growing maybe a cover crop in that area for a few years can definitely help to improve the soil. Yeah. So so what are you know I often have this conversation when, when we're talking about, um, especially when you have higher organic matter, higher just just higher better soil. I, I guess when it comes to CEC and organic matter, 
what what are the nutrients released through the mineralization process? Yes, and the, the main one obviously is nitrogen, right? Um, one key component of organic matter is uh, uh, is nitrogen, and so that's that's going to be there. And so as we have that breakdown of organic residues, uh, the nitrogen is going to start to to become plant available, um, and so. In reality, this is going to be one of the main sources of nitrogen uh, for you know corn crop that we are growing. A lot of it's going to come from the soil, which is basically directly from the organic matter. And so again, that's that's one of the main ones, right? But then we have other nutrients, like for example, sulfur. Sulfur is actually in a way very similar to nitrogen. Uh, it comes from the organic uh, organic matter fraction. So if we do have good mineralization and breakdown of organic matter, we can have good release of sulfur. On the flip side, if we, you know, we have situations where, you know, erosion, low organic matter problems, uh, sandy soils, that's where we tend to see sulfur deficiencies start to show up, mm -hmm. right? So that's one, one, one other that is we are seeing more and more, and it's really just part, uh, part of our, uh, uh, you know, fertility management. Uh, we touch a little bit about things like, you know, potassium as well, which actually you know, leach back from the residue. You know, we, we do le leave a lot of, of potassium in the residue after harvest. Yep. Some of that, you know, as the, as the residue start to break down and, and just just release back some of that nutrient. Um, uh, and again, in the case of potassium, can be can be quite significant. And then a lot of the micros, uh, you know, one thing that we don't talk about, uh, maybe not, not really your question about the source, um, Organic matter maybe is not necessarily the source of some nutrients, but also play a role in terms of availability of nutrients. And I'm talking uh, like metal micronutrients. If you think about metal micronutrients like zinc or uh, you know iron or manganese, uh, the type of fertilizer we apply are typically chelated fertilizer, which is basically chelate these organic compounds to keep that nutrient more in, in solution and available to the plants. Um, and again. This is really one function that organic matter is also providing. Having good organic matter is keeping a lot of these micronutrients more available uh, through this chelation process, basically more available to the roots for uptake. And so that's that's another key key aspect as well that you know a good, well managed, a good organic matter content uh, is the source of some nutrients, but also helping with availability of others. Absolutely, I've been looking forward to asking this question and. Uh, Andrew and I work with a bunch of really amazing growers, but uh, one farm in particular that that does just an amazing job. They've been cover cropping for probably fifteen or twenty years. Have a beautiful system, and and one of um, I'll give the guy's name, Don Vosses. Uh, things he loves to point out is how many uh, earthworms he has in his soil. Uh, so when we go and and we're we're scouting and digging roots and stuff, he loves to point that out. <laughs> Do, Sounds do, like my dad. Yeah, I mean they love it. So, <laughs> so do earthworms uh, benefit and add to soil health? Absolutely, it's it's, it's one of the and then, yeah, I'm I'm I also like earthworms and I like. <laughs> That's when you know you're a true soil work. scientist, right? I feel I feel yeah. like there's there's like the NCGA contest for corn yields. There needs to be like the earthworm <laughs> per square foot contest for the for the strip till guys. Soil health they contest. Just, yeah, yeah, these guys absolutely love it. So yeah, talk talk about talk about earthworms in the soil. Yes, yes. No, I I agree, and and I think that it, there's a reason for that, right? We people that we we uh, we work with soils and and like healthy soils. Uh, um, uh, we, we see the, the value of earthworms and, and, and how they are working and, and essentially tie back to the question earlier of organic matter, right? 
the earthworms are basically cycling that organic matter that they take residue, digest, and basically release uh, that organic compound in much more simple way that can be releasing nutrients as well, right? And so play a big role from that standpoint. And it's just one indication of, of how well that, you know, that soil is being managed. And you mentioned cover crops. And, and the reason why you have a lot of uh, airworms in that case is because you have food basically for the airworms, right? Oh, yeah. So you're, you're keeping that, that system alive. And, and so, yes, um, it play a big role in soil nutrients uh, cycling and nutrient supply. And, and again, one of the reasons why I also like it very much. Yeah, absolutely. I, I love that answer. Um, thinking about uh, some of our our um, mobile nutrients, you know, th- thinking about, uh, you know, obviously nitrate's a big one, but, you know, you got sulfur that, that can leach out, uh, boron, I believe. So w- what nutrients are leachable in our soils? And, and I asked, you know, both micros and macros, and, and I asked that because you know, do we, do we need to manage those differently? If, if we know a, a certain nutrient is, is leachable, do we need to focus more on that, re- reapplying that the following growing season based on, you know, mm-hmm. if we do get a lot of rain? Yes, yes, that's, a, that's an excellent point. And, 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 and the answer, yes, we, these are the nutrients that probably need a little bit more attention uh, because we can obviously loss from the system. And, and that, that's, that's always a key a key issue uh, from the agronomic standpoint, because if you start staying there, uh, you know, the crop is not going to use it, right? And so that's, that's a key key factor there. And, and obviously nitrogen, right? That's the, the main one, uh, the nitrate form. And, and I mentioned nitrate because uh, you can put ammonium and ammonium obviously not going anywhere until it's converted to nitrate. Yeah. And at that point, the nitrate is going to be subject to leaching. <clears throat> and so... Um, uh, others that again for us is, is becoming more important is sulfur. We can have significant uh, losses and leaching of sulfur actually <clears throat> during the growing season. Um, micronutrients you mentioned things like boron a little bit. Uh, also, um, uh, the advantage of that is that we don't need as much, and yeah. so that's, that's typically a little bit easier. Um, in some of the western part of the Corn Belt and Great Plains, actually for us here we we do see also uh, chloride. Which is one micronutrient really? that's, you know, uh, especially in, in soils where you don't have any history of potassium application, right? And so no, no KCL applied, very high in potassium. Um, and we are leaching some of the chloride. And so we start to see some potential need for chloride application in some of those hmm. soils. Uh, again, really more, more focus on those Western parts. And for, for us, that's definitely happens in Central and Western Kansas. Um, and I see the same in, you know, uh, Nebraska, South Dakota, uh, uh, we see similar results. And so the question then is, uh, how do we manage this? And, and it's really, um, uh, we need to pay more attention in terms of potential need for split application in some cases. Yeah. Um, uh, that's, that's one of the, uh, the key factors. Uh, um, some of our irrigated corn, uh, we try to put some of that for the irrigation system in season. Um, and so all anything we can do to be able to have that nutrient ready there during the entire growing season is very important. Uh, in the case of nitrogen, what we're seeing in recent years is that actually a lot of the new genetics is taking up nitrogen pretty late in the season. Yeah. Right? yeah. And, and so, so that means we need to still have some nitrogen later in the season there. Yep. So we're putting everything and hydros in the fall. Uh, the question is, is that nitrogen going to still be there when the corn starting to tassel? Right. Yeah, um, and and so so here is where we need to think about a little bit more about how to manage that. Now, how is that going to affect you know each field? 
each uh, farm is different and and it goes back a little bit to the discussion we have about earlier about CEC potential you know sandy soil versus fine texture soil and here's where you know each agronomist and, and farmer really need to consider each field I think this is very relevant given your location <laughs> but speak a little bit because really the whole corn belt has been impacted by both erratic weather, but but certainly drought the last couple of years has has played a significant role in corn production, corn and soybean production. Talk a little bit about how uh, drought impacts nutrient availability. Yes. Um, what, one of the things that we, you know, we talk about, for example, the, the mobile nutrients, all of these are basically, um, you know, affected by water, right? Movement of the nutrients are essentially affected by water nutrient uptake happening through with water for some of the, the, the main nutrients. And so, so really the, the, the nutrients and, and water go hand in hand. And so uh, that's, that's one key thing that we need to, to think about. Something that we're seeing in some of our situations here uh, with very dry conditions is that suddenly things like placement of, of the nutrients become a little bit more important. Absolutely. Uh, you want to have that nutrient maybe a little bit closer to the roots, just because you know you don't have the the amount of water that's moving some of that some of yeah. that nutrient through the root system, um, and so those are some of the minor things that you start to notice uh, when you have dry conditions. Yeah, I'm I'm really and, glad. And so I'm I'm really glad you brought that up, Dorvar, because that that kind of led into something that it kind of tied into one of our questions. But you know, with, with the drought we've had the last year, we get a lot of you know we have. We have a wide range of, of management practices when it comes to tillage here in Iowa. You know, we have we, we have no till, we have conventional till, we have strip till, we have uh, rec ridge rec ridge recreational ridge till. Rec our recreational <laughs> tillage, we'll call it. <laughs> Best shirt ever, by the way. Uh, if if we if anybody ever wants an idea of make a shirt, recreational tillage question mark, and then you show it. Anyways, so you know, I, I remember last year in, in the the last two to three years, really. We've had the conversation, you know, with, with growers across Iowa and, and really, you know, I'm sure across the Corn Belt when it comes to dry conditions and nutrient access and availability. So you, you think about the importance of if, if you're broadcast versus, say, strip till or, or broadcast versus ridge till, if, if you are applying nutrients in a band, how, how big of an impact, you know, you, you think about the, the uh, we'll say the concentration of these, these nutrients within the soil profile, if you're broadcast versus... Uh, you know, say strip till or, or or putting that those nutrients in a zone. How, how does the does, does having dry soils and encountering dry conditions for a plant make it that much more important to have a higher concentration and maybe have a, have a say strip till or a zone of application versus broadcast? D does that really impact the 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 uptake within a plant and and overall usage of those nutrients? Yeah, and, that, and that's exactly what we're seeing in, in some cases. And again, it's not something that will happen every year. And so we have to keep that in mind as well. And, and you know, your normal year, you don't really see a difference between ban apply and broadcast, right? Mm. But then you don't have a limitation in terms of how that root is developing. So it's able to access basically, um, you know, whatever that nutrient is in that, in that zone is going to be able to access. Yep. Um, and so that placement is important for strip teal. But one thing also that you have to keep in mind is that, you know, with a strip till, you're not, you know, you're not doing your recreational tillage there. So in other <laughs> words, you're, you're not losing as much moisture as you do with, with conventional tillage, right? Yeah. And so you're only just moving that, that soil a little bit there in the, uh, managing that residue and, and putting that seed bed, but the rest of the residue stay intact. 
and it's protecting that soil. Yeah. And so we really have a little bit of combination here of, of that placement of nutrients, but also the benefit of keeping as much moisture as, as we can, basically, yeah. in that scenario. And so so, so yeah. if, if you have, say, say you're comparing uh, strip till where you have that zone of application versus broadcast, if, if you're in super droughty conditions like we've experienced, do, does that impact, will, will that impact the plant's ability to not only reach those nutrients, obviously, because of concentration, but also take those nutrients up? Is, is that where you're start seeing a difference if, you, if you're in super dry conditions or is it still pretty? Yeah. Yeah, no, that's basically where we start to see that difference uh, start to show up a little bit more for us. Um, again, when you have that dry condition, that really makes a difference. I, I personally really like strip teal, by the way, for, for, for that, for the many benefits that you get uh, putting the nutrients uh, in, in an uh, efficient way. You know, you are injecting that nutrients, not going to be lost by, you know, we talk a lot about runoff losses of phosphorus and oh, that yeah, kind of yeah. stuff, right? But you don't have to worry about that when you're injecting everything. Everything's going to be there available to the crops and we're not losing anything. Yeah. Um, and again, you're managing your residue much better as well. So I, I see a lot of benefits, uh, the best of, 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 of what we get from tillage as well as what, you know, benefits of not till basically in the strip till. Yeah. My dad's going to love your answer. <laughs> as, as, we, as we wrap up, uh, I, I think this is actually the final question before we get to the, the fun wrap-up question that Sean yeah. always has. Um, I, I keep hearing more and more about biochar. In, in growers, you know, I, I don't know much about it. I, I've, I've heard some of the benefits and, and I, I guess I don't know if I can tell you the pros and cons, but what do you know about biochar and, and are, what are the pros and cons that you know of? Yeah, I'm, I'm not too familiar with biochar in terms of the fertility use. Obviously, I'm, I, I know what it is. It's, it's basically black carbon from, from biomass, uh, 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 essentially, but uh in terms of soil, a lot of the, 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 the emphasis has been, okay, how we can use biochars to improve soil conditions. And uh, we do have some, some work here in Kansas looking at these. And what we found is that, you know, from the fertility standpoint, we don't see a lot of added benefit. But then we have to think about biochar, uh, you know, in our soils, we're really talking about black mollusk soils that are really pretty, pretty good for the most part, right? Yeah. So now, if you are putting biochar in a you know tropical soil somewhere, I can see a more a bigger impact. But uh, we don't see as much from the fertility standpoint, at least in in, in our soils. Uh, but there are also more interest now in terms of you know is this a way to put more carbon in the soil? Yeah, absolutely. And so, so that's another another aspect that we're looking at here is is which which again, even though we're not getting necessarily a, a big increase in, in fertility and and so on. Uh, we are putting more carbon there in the soil and we are basically uh, storing carbon that way. So that's one thing that is, is being explored as well more and more. Um, but, but yes, I, I see uh, obviously some, uh, uh, there, there may be some potential benefits. I don't think as much benefit as we would see in other soils, but you know, in our molecule soils, that's not, not as much. Yeah. One of my favorite questions that I get to ask as we uh, near the end of our show is, in the time you've spent in research and your education, uh, whether it's at K State or something else that you've done, or Iowa State, yeah, pre or, preferably or since Iowa we're State, yeah. time an Iowa State guy, yeah, yeah. Get, get one, <laughs> oh, that's good. <laughs> get one back on Ty Barton here. Um, tell me something that has has just really been game changing, whether that's in in the way you think about row crop production or or something really cool you've gotten to be a part of. Yes. Um, and I don't know if this is a 
game changer necessarily, but something cool that I think I I, I was involved. Uh, and I always think that you know the connection between between agriculture and the society in general. When I when I was a graduate student at the University of Illinois, um, I was involved with with a project to basically uh, look at dredge uh, sediment from the Illinois River mm. and use for agriculture, right? Huh. And so we tested this for for soybeans, uh, for for corn. We did all kinds of evaluations in terms of what's what's the the pros and cons. Uh, and after this project, basically, uh, good results. Obviously, a lot of this is really just so topsoil that end up in the river. Um, um, after this, we basically uh, there was a project that uh, took most of this material and used it for parks in Chicago. Really, and and so the the results of our project basically, I was able to see that you know you see directly used and, and you see now. Uh, being used especially in the city right in, in chicago that uh, work that we did in central illinois and so um i always try to to i always enjoy that um again it's it was just a fun project and and being able to see that something that you did in in, in small small project and that basically impacting something that you know uh in other places, especially yeah. again, when it goes to the city, I'm always excited to, to see that. Man, <laughs> man I, I love that answer. And I think this question has quickly become my favorite question yeah. because we have all these professionals, you know, professors and, and people that work at universities, just changing the, the world when it comes to crop, crop production and the research. But to hear what's cool for them, you know, I, I think pretty much all we talked about is cool with you, but you, you look at what's cool to you and what's game changing. Yeah. I love these. I love that question. It's Yeah, it's been it's been really fun. We've gotten to have some awesome guests and it, and sometimes it's exactly what you would think it would be. Yeah. And then sometimes it's, it's yeah, from a totally. completely different place. <laughs> but well, Dr. Diaz, we, we finish our show. Um, my co-host agronomist is Mr. Andrew Penny. So I cash in my penny. Andrew, give me uh, three or four succinct takeaways. You bet. I, I got a lot of valuable information, uh, you know, from both the science and management that I think growers and, and other agronomists, crop consultants will be able to utilize when it comes to, uh, you know, understanding soil, soil fertility and making those nutrient uh, recommendations. I, I think the first one that stood out, you you hit on very early. It's, you know, we often talk about micros and, and, and other things, but really when it comes comes down to the important stuff, it's looking at your pH and organic matter, right? If, if you're looking at a soil test, manage that pH. That's going to be number one because that's going to impact the availability of all your macros and micros, right? Um, the, the second key takeaway, um, I think, you know, it, it's uh, often a, a question of what is buffer pH. And, and we learned that when you're looking at your buffer pH on, on your soil analysis uh, results sheet, that is an indication of the reserve acidity, right? So that's basically uh, what it's telling you the, the hydrogen in the exchange sites, and so that's, you know, basically that's what's going to help us make those decisions on the amount of lime we need uh, in, in order to change that pH, right? And then, and then I, I think one of my key takeaways is I remember you were talking about pH and variable rate. And, and that's a whole, that we could, we could spend another hour talking Absolutely. about variable rate nutrient applications, right? But you, you emphasized if, if anything needs to be variable rated is pH, right? And, and that makes sense. We have, you have such drastic changes within a field, you know, looking at soil texture in the pH within a field. If you're, if you're not variable rating your, your lime, you can have areas where you're going to over apply and or under apply, right? 
And so if, if we're shooting for a target, and if I remember correctly, I think your target pH going back in my notes was 6.5. Yep, 6.5 right? to 6.8. So if you're not variable rating your lime, you're going to have spots where you could possibly go higher indoor, not get enough and still be low. So I, I think that's a key takeaway. If, if there's anything that needs variable rated, and again, that's a whole nother discussion. There's obviously huge pros. I'm a, I'm a fan of variable rate nitrogen and, and other stuff, but we need to be variable rating lime. Yeah. Um, Dr. Diaz, thank you so much. Um, on Twitter at Soil Fertility KS, uh, for our listeners that want to follow Dr. Um, Dr. Diaz, uh, thank you so much for joining us today. Uh, thank you for the expertise that you've built over the years of your education. And um, I guess anything to add before we, before we end? No, that's it. Thank you so much for, for the opportunity. Really enjoy it. Yeah, we really appreciate you. We appreciate the expertise. Hope you guys uh, get some much needed uh, reprieve from the from the uh, from the drought out there, and and have a great growing season. Thank you. Same 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 to you guys there in Iowa. Yeah. Thank you. Thank you, Andrew. Thanks, Dorvar. Right. Thank you for joining us on another episode of A Penny for Your Thoughts. We love your feedback. Please email us at apennyforyourthoughts at gmail.com. That's a penny, the number four, your thoughts at gmail.com. Or reach out to Andrew and I on our social media. Thank you for tuning in.